this movie told its story so well and so uniquely by using by by using all the tricks that you know have been around for for decades yeah we have some very complex shots that took a lot of time elbow grease and some computation but there's a reality that you can still make a good movie if, even if you're using yesterday's tricks or tricks that people think are old-fashioned or or are so old that people aren't even aware of them Welcome back to Cool Hand Crypto, where cinema, culture, and crypto collide. My name is Matt Silverman, and just a reminder, my NFT project, The Sherwood Project, is doing a limited 12-hour public sale June 15th. We're making a movie, planting trees, and so much more. So head to thesherwoodproject.com for more info. Today's guest goes by many titles, including designer, director, painter, and for today's discussion, lead visual effects artist for the cinematic firework known as Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Hailing from the depths of my alma mater, Emerson College, Mr. Ethan Felbau, welcome to Cool Hand Crypto. Hello, Matt Silverman. Thank you for having me. I know you've been doing a lot of these discussions and a lot of talks, probably with a lot of other college people. We're, so we're college friends. We know each other from college. Yes. We've worked together in college, and uh, I've had the pleasure of watching your career uh, blossom and change and evolve and and I've always believed in you as an artist. Let's start from the beginning. So your lead visual effects artist, how did you get here? Because you're a director, you're a designer, and you've worked with, I'm just going to name some of these names, Guillermo del Toro, Bennett Miller, David O. Russell, Hiro Murai. You have a lengthy resume and you've worked on a ton of different projects. So tell everyone who doesn't know about you, who are you? That's a good question. I'm still learning every day. So, um, as Matt said, we went to college together and I studied film production and uh, slipped right into post-production in Boston, where there was, at the time, a booming commercial industry. So I got myself a, a, a bit of a post-education uh, right off the bat, right around the time of uh, the 2008 recession. And when everything... Uh, wound down for advertising. I took a gamble and, and transported myself to Los Angeles to freelance uh, in production so I could learn uh, as much as I did about post. Uh, that's where you and I kind of met up again. I was working primarily as an art director. Uh, found myself in a, a little commune of people making music videos, which included Hero, it included the Daniels, uh, it included you. Um, and I wound up being an art director for the larger part of a decade um, with this social group. Um, in fact, it was only in the past couple of years that I, I started to slide back into doing visual effects. And that became my bread and butter. And just before the pandemic hit, um, the Daniels film was greenlit because we had worked together in the past because they knew that I was both an art director and a visual effects artist. And coincidentally, because I had befriended their visual effects supervisor, their first hire, and had just done a show called Breakerati that he directed, he, he asked me to join this movie. Um, uh, sounds kind of roundabout that I was hired by someone other than the Daniels, 
but um, we had a good time making Breakerati, and uh, he suggested meet the Daniels, and the Daniels said, oh, yes, we, we certainly know this person. We've worked with him in the past. Um, so that, that sums up 10 years of working in freelance music videos, uh, primarily art directing, and then all of a sudden this crazy movie uh, comes into the spotlight. Can you break down what does an art director do? What does a designer do? Because I've seen you, for yes. example, go to a dumpster, pull out trash, and turn it into the most stunning set you've ever seen in your life. And, and, is, and I want you to talk about that because it, it is sort of a natural trajectory because what you do now in visual effects is sort of similar. It's just on a computer. But let's start with, with art direction and, and production design and designing. Yes, good call. Uh, throughout the history of cinema, the art director was the person responsible for how everything looked in frame, separate from the actors and what they wore. Um, and you could say separate from lighting and lens pertaining to camera. But the responsibility of an art director is, is to make the environments tell the story, whether that's going to a location and redressing it with um, artwork or smalls, um, uh, furnishings, things to change the story it tells to fit, or building completely from scratch in a studio and building a set. Matt, you know, is describing one video he directed where we took over uh, a large empty room in the home he was living in and retrofit it into a dark brown and gold steampunk, almost, I think of the, the organ from the Nautilus, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This was a $5,000 budget, and I don't remember what we gave you, but we basically said, here, take it all and create something. And you did. You, you made an amazing uh, symphony of, of light and shadow and steampunk insanity. In that video, there was a, a need to create, um, my goodness, how would you describe that character? Like the Phantom of the Opera, some, some uh, character making music in a dark dwelling um, lit with hundreds of incandescent light bulbs and the entire wall, floor, ceilings is covered in, in cladding and a patina that looks very architecturally complex. I wouldn't say it, it, it is uh, a specific location you can put your finger on and you can say, ah, yes, we are in uh, a ship. But we, we created a dwelling, an environment for this character who's in darkness and isolation and being a musician uh, and has cobbled together um, their equipment to make whatever music they're making. You said it better than I could. I really feel like you are in auteur in the most truest sense. And, and what's interesting is when people think of auteur, they think of a director. And you are a director and you have amazing things you've directed, but your style and your Autorism, if that's a word, um, does, does is consistent across all of your projects. And I think it's because of your approach. It's how you approach a project. You're not just saying, hey, we need a lamp. You're saying, why do we need this lamp? And what does it do? And how does it work? And how does it relate to the story? So what what is your approach when you approach, whether it's the Daniels project, a music video, or, or anything that you're working on? What is that approach? When I hear auteur, I think of singular authorship and totalitarian control. And uh, 
while I can bring my own ideas, I have found over the years that uh, there's no escaping the collaboration of working with the other departments and the director. Um, so uh, I come to the table with a knowledge of uh, art history and technical experience in the worlds of uh, set design, photography, painting, and visual effects, but we're still we're still talking art direction, uh, and and that working history allows me to decode a director's script or idea, figure out what needs to be said, and then know how to assemble uh, the environments needed for that story. Um, it's a blend of knowing how much time money and labor goes in as much as having the artistic side of it, which is knowing what materials and forms are going to work, what things should be made out of, how you can find them. Um, so uh, I, I have also been a director and done some music videos uh, and short films and very quickly realized that just being the director is only one small tip of the iceberg for telling your story. And I quickly realized that on screen, I wanted to use tools beyond just the actors and what they said. So I realized you know, the importance of lighting and photography and the importance of um, how a set should be built and how much set you need to put on screen to make it look the way you'd like it to look. So that's when I started to switch over to production and art direction because um, it was one more way that you could more more clearly communicate your idea. Um, it's, it's surprisingly important, even though it's always background to the actor that you're looking at. So how did you apply those skills into your visual effects skills? Is it a similar approach? And I've seen some of your projects and there's 500 layers and I see how, what I would call a, a very delicate approach to visual effects. And what I mean by that, there's so much focus on the smallest details as opposed to a lot of visual effects you might see, which are really just broad strokes. You know, it doesn't sure. take into account the whole picture. So how, how, was, um, how did art direction and, and production design and designing um, affect your approach to visual effects? We're about 20 years into this whole new no man's land of uh, digital cinema. Uh, once upon a time, filmmaking was photographic. You built everything in front of the camera and you photographed it. And there was a certain skill set and approach to have everything ready to be photographed. And as we started to work in the industry, film became a digital medium, one in which you could simulate the photographic image and you no longer had to put everything in front of a camera and photograph it. This may sound really like meta, but the reality is we are now living in a simulation of a photographic art form. So if I were to describe an art director as the person who's responsible for what's on screen other than the actors, all of a sudden, we're in a world where much of what's on screen is digital. So I did find that while there isn't an exact title for the person who 
does the equivalent of art direction for visual effects, because it is so integral to today's filmmaking, there needs to be that person who approaches visual effects with the same finesse as an art director would. Um, uh, you know, I, more often than not, I am finding that it is not possible for me to build a large set. And that was kind of going out a decade ago. What I am finding is I can build a percentage of a set and then work with a team of visual effects artists for how to complete and finish and flesh out the set. Um, it's the natural progression that uh, the uh, facilities and tools that an art director uses are now moving into the digital domain. Um, I think the reason that um, I've been able to make this sort of career hop is because of that understanding of photography, painting, light, um, and, and working so closely with directors to figure out how to put their vision on screen. And then now that I just move over to visual effects, I, I feel as though I'm doing the exact same job, except um, my toolkit has changed. I imagine most people listening to this have already seen everything everywhere all at once. But for people who haven't, what is this film? What a challenge to explain that film in two lines. Inciting story level, it's about a middle-aged Chinese-American woman trying to finish her taxes. On a broader, more allegorical level, it is a family that's not communicating and they have their hang-ups. And when suddenly an, uh, an interdimensional space opera of, of crazy invades their lives, they both learn, they all learn, who they are and how much they care for each other. Um, it's a very clever film that starts grounded in reality and takes you on a most magical trip to all possibilities that can be in the multiverse. Uh, makes you cry a little too. Yeah, it's it's an incredible feat and, and it has such almost a Michelle Gondry kind of feel as far as this very... Um, creative explosion. Uh, you really get this sense that yeah. people cared for this movie. They love this movie and they, they worked really, really hard to make it as great as it is. Um, in your, we'll, we'll show some, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you should watch the, the YouTube version because we'll show uh, clips from the VFX reel of, of things we're talking about here. But one of the things you say is 90% of the 500 plus VFX shots were completed by five artists, which is incredible. Yeah. And uh, this has even led to Jamie Lee Curtis having a beef with Marvel. Is that right? Yeah, whether whether she fanned the flames on purpose or it just came up organically, uh, I think she loves the controversy. I have yeah. learned, though, Marvel fans are very serious. Yeah. And they felt hurt when we compared the two films. I won't bring up the name of the film because I don't want people with torches knocking on my doors. But but people love both movies. And there was a notion that you could only pick one, which sounds funny. But 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 for young fans, they felt that that was they had to pick one. We'll mediate this feud a little bit because I think they're they're both uh, everything everywhere all at once is doing something very different than a typical Marvel film and in, in a very different way. Um, and you can see it and it's and you can have a preference for which you like or don't like. 
but they're both doing something really interesting in a very different way. So let's let's start with this fact, though. So over 500 shots, mostly done by five artists, including you. So what does yes. that what is that like? That's a lot of shots for one movie with a, a very small team. So what does that feel like? And um, I, I imagine that was quite a mountain to climb. So what was the approach to climbing it? It was very imposing and it hadn't really been done, or at least I should say we hadn't participated in a film that had been made in that way. Um, so the Daniels are also visual effects artists. And so they're able to do something that not all directors can do. And that is sort of plan out their movie to include visual effects and like keep it at the forefront of their mind while they're making the movie. A larger movie might have a director who doesn't do visual effects and really needs to rely on a visual effects supervisor to command every effect shot. And that takes a lot of time. And that's why some movies um, need tens, let's, let's be serious, hundreds of visual effects artists to all be working at once to take care of any requests that come in so they can in a very full service way make all of these effects happen and provide lots of iterations uh, to make something as big and as complex as a Marvel movie. The Daniels wanted a different aesthetic. They wanted something that was trashy, even bad looking, and grounded in reality. It, it, her, Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn, her, her adventure was uh, much more about um, the, you know, doldrum, boring reality of her life in her small apartment, in her laundromat. It's messy. Um, it's not very glamorous. And the magic that the Daniels wanted to put on screen was to reflect that simplicity. Um, uh, right off the bat, that's a little easier for a smaller group of people to do. Uh, and then uh, when the Daniel shot this movie, um, Zach Stoltz, our visual effects supervisor, was on set with them the whole time. Uh, also integral is Jason Kisvardi, the production designer who I'm also friends with. So we could kind of all talk and split up how much of the gags would happen practically on set and then what we would do in visual effects to finish them. Um, so that, that allowed it to be possible. We were really close friends and able to just talk more freely than 500 people trying to talk at once. Uh, and I think lastly, the other real secret to how five people did this is that all of us, um, Zach, myself, Jeff Desim, Ben Brewer, um, uh, we had two other artists, too, um, uh, Matt Wakone and Evan Halleck, but um, we're, we're directors as well. Uh, and like you mentioned earlier with, I guess you could say, the, the auteurism, um, not just being a cog in the wheel, but being many cogs with the ability to kind of think about what needs to happen, what the purpose of an effect shot is and what needs to be communicated, and also being able to design and present uh, concept art ourselves and not need other illustrators to come on board. Um, 
the Daniels basically had um, uh, a team of five doing each what 10 people normally do. So we were able to just dive in and rough out the shots, communicate really clearly with the directors and get them polished. It sounds so simple when you just say it out loud like that. It was very hard. What I think is important to highlight here is that you had an immensely talented team, a small team, but an immensely talented team. But what's inspiring is that this is in some ways something anyone can do. Not anyone can do Marvel, but anyone can get together a group of really creative people and work really hard on a big task. So in the reel, and we'll show this, there's a, a shot that says, um, using plates that the director shot while on vacation, right? Yes. <laughs> so yeah. were those plates in the actual film? Yes, they sure were. I mean, you make a good point. Um, the, the visual effects industry is competitive. And some goals for some movies are to be the biggest and the best and the flashiest, to spend the most money, to put the most particles on screen. Um, uh, we knew we weren't making a Marvel movie. Maybe it's about the tools you used, right? Because I think it's important to say that like, hey, we can do this with iPhone shots from the director's vacation. We can do this with After Effects. Um, yes. We can do this with, and, and you tell me, what were the tools that you had at hand? So the, the tour de force came from a, Adobe Creative Suite. So the movie was cut in Premiere and the effects were done uh, in After Effects, with the exception of a small amount of 3D being generated in Blender. Now, these are tools that a professional filmmaker or a beginner filmmaker can have access to. And this really didn't exist more than 20 years ago. It really did not. Um, so we were able to use somewhat, I'll say, off-the-shelf, software that we were all familiar with. Uh, we had been using it for years and create these special shots and some very like bespoke looks just by using um, some of the core tools. I, I can't even say that we bought expensive third-party plugins that brought like style and look and feel. We used a more pared down effects system um, readily available um, and and we were just able to um, make all these shots uh, and deliver near 4k deliverables in the end was after effects capable of handling everything you threw at it or do you feel like you were maxing it out at times we sometimes get asked if we would prefer to use other compositing tools. Uh, I never felt we needed to. I thought that some of their uh, base tools, Keylight was our primary keyer, and some people are kind of like, what? Keylight? Just Keylight? Um, uh, we came up with a few secret sauce combinations uh, again, only possible within the past few years that, that made After Effects the workhorse. Can you get into that secret sauce a little bit? Uh, a little bit. Um, 
I, I, I would say that um, recently Rotobrush uh, became on the market, a tool to simplify rotoscoping process. Um, now, we used it a lot. I mean, we had a blend. We often, we often sort of had a friendly competition between whether a more traditional pipeline for roto work or a newer pipeline for the the, the most recent version of roto brush um, would have differences in the results. Um, and um, I, I, there were some shots that roto brush could knock out faster and cleaner um, than a more traditional roto pipeline. Uh, Without that speed and without that delicacy, the shots simply would have taken longer. Um, so that's, you know, gold star for the Adobe team that is working on that. As lead visual effects artist, what did your job entail exactly? Was it more of just you're all juggling together or, or were there sort of delineated roles? It was delegated. So Zach ran a rather tight ship. It was organized. Uh, we had we scheduled everything out properly on a calendar. We knew, you know, what what we were working on. My job uh, as a lead designer is to come up with how the shots should look. Again, like art direction, and the way in which they should be executed, so I can pass that information on to a group of effects artists. Um, to facilitate. So I go in and I figure out, okay, this is the look for this scene. Let me assemble it, uh, share it with everybody, the people who need approvals, like the directors, the Daniels. And then at that point, I can then pull in additional effects artists, one, two, three, four, five, 10, 20, 100, and work with that group to facilitate a scene. Let's start with the bagel. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. Was the bagel in the script? And then yeah. how did it evolve into what we see on screen? I think most people would be shocked that the shooting script was very accurate to what made it on screen. So that's one thing. The Daniels had it plotted out. Um, in fact, some things were shot and removed from the movie. We can get to that later. Um, the bagel was written in a most simplistic way. You might have interior temple of the bagel, you know, curtain opens and it's the bagel. So what does that look like? Um, you know, we understood the concept of the bagel, that it was to be a black hole. And we, we, there was a, a prevailing notion that the bagel would be black in color from the beginning. Though we also wondered if it should be transparent, if you should just see how it displaces the environment around it. Um, uh, we didn't know. So we started with a good old fashioned uh, test shoot with Larkin Seipel, our director of photography who went to Emerson, with Jason Kisvardi, our production designer, um, myself and Zach. And we did test shoots with a real bagel that we painted black. We shot um, ferrofluids, magnetic fluid, um, because there was an early notion that the bagel would behave in a more liquid way and that it would have liquid tentacles to reach out and grab people um, uh, that it would sort of melt and, and, and then reform Terminator 2 style in a way. Um, we took all these tests 
and I threw together some concept art of the bagel, solid black, no detail except for a little bit of uh, lighting to show you enough detail to understand its form. Presented these to the Daniels. I thought it was a step in the right direction. Uh, we then proceeded to do tests with the liquids and how it should move. And that actually didn't click very well. You know, we did this before the shoot so that when they were filming the movie, they kind of knew how the bagel would behave. And I remember being on set one day and the Daniels were talking about what if we made practically, you know, um, black tentacles that could reach out and grab people. You know, is there a benefit to taking some cool floaty noodles and covering them in, in, in duvetine and, and, and having it reach out to people? And in a way, we, we never developed that further beyond talking about it. It just, it just didn't make sense. When we got to editing the movie, and we got to the climax of the movie, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to talk the climax of the movie, um, in which uh, Joy Jobu is facing this bagel. And uh, we put the bagel in, and... It wasn't, it wasn't emotional enough. There was a giant bagel there. Um, and the liquid movements didn't really make a lot of sense. So in true, true Daniel's form, we went back to the concept. And we threw away preconceived notions of what the bagel should do. And we, we really looked to um, general relativity how a black hole behaves, uh, an event horizon. And I think I threw this word out there, spin cycle, that perhaps in order to make this bagel more threatening and dynamic, it should be spinning violently. And somehow that all clicked. That's when the bagel came to life. There was a relationship between the bagel and the dryer at the laundromat. There was a, a sense of centrifugal force. And while that emits... Uh, we, we treated it more like gravity so that it pulled in like a whirlpool. Um, physics. Uh, physics. Um, or at least to cheat it so that you could believe that this was a dangerous thing if you got close to it. Uh, Zach, in the, the reel that we're going to show, did that beautiful shot of, of Jobu's, uh, Jobu looking through her fingers and the camera pans up and the bagel appears in the IRS building. And he animated those bodies stretching into the bagel. And it, that ending took a lot of time because it started very clean and dry. And then we eventually figured out the performance for the bagel. And um, you, you really do feel like uh, there's a threat if you get too close to that thing. You know, the, the only thing I can really say is it was in all those iterations of Black Bagel. So it always was as described, but we had to learn through these different iterations and through trial and error, how to really make you feel and believe what it was doing. Um, that's kind of the whole secret for this movie, that we, we were afforded the time and ability and the collaboration with the directors to feel our way through each shot to make sure you understood and could believe what it was supposed to be doing. I understand the, the aesthetic of it and what it was supposed to look like, but did you have any direction from the Daniels 
or other as far as what what it was symbolizing? I think people are going to say different things because um, it started so open-ended and people added to it piece by piece. But the one thing I can say for sure is that bagel represents all of Jobu's sadness compounded. You know, that is everything she had hoped for, everything she had wanted, um, which didn't happen to her in her first primary universe. It is all put on that bagel into which it collapses into something akin to a singularity or some inescapable world of sadness. Um, and we, we finessed it enough that that simplicity of all those forms and all those objects trapped in the bagel being black felt, felt bleak enough. Um, I suppose we had to challenge the challenge of also motivating the rainbow light that emits during verse jumping. That was my next question. Yeah. So that's what I was referring to earlier with the, the director shooting plates on vacation. You get a little bit of those colored lights in the bagel, but they primarily show up in moments when a character is jumping from one verse to another. So there are two techniques at play. One is the one that you pointing out where Dan Kwan went on vacation with a GoPro and he showed you a point of view of traveling through space. So for the moments where we needed to see what it was like to be moving forward down the z-axis through different environments dan kwan just you know went and walked around with a camera around his neck and he got all that material we then took that material and played it back on led panels so that you could have that video playing back as a light source on either side of uh, evelyn and that is specific to the shot in the movie where we objectively see her flying backwards. Um, so that was a, a, a very expressionistic moment in the film where we wanted the audience to subjectively feel being pulled through physical space. And it was achieved in that way. Then there are the moments where we're objectively just looking at the character but not seeing how they're traveling. And they're shorter moments um, or moments that suggest that they are witnessing through two different universes. And that was um, a lighting gag set up by our gaffer, Matt Ardine, who also went to Emerson, um, in which they had RGB LED chasers um, built out in a triangular fashion just in front of the camera. I think everybody openly points out that this is a, a gag lifted from another film reference called La Inferno. I hope I'm saying that right. A, a mid sixties experimental film, which plays out like a lot of clever lighting tests. And they did a similar effect with chaser bulbs around a person's face. And that clicked with the Daniels and um, they brought it to life and it became um, uh, the visual motif for facing, seeing, uh, the different verses. Now, in the reel, it says Rakakuni. Am I saying that right? Rakakuni? Rakakuni, yes. Rakakuni was all 2D elements. That shot, Matt's referring to this shot of the uh, Tepanaki chef working on the hibachi and flipping food around in the air. The inclination 
for a lot of these shots was that they're going to need to be in 3D. Uh, and Zach Stoltz, our visual effects supervisor, was sort of marking shots and saying like, well, in order for this to look real, it should be 3D. And uh, we met one morning to discuss the approach of this shot at a time when there were only three people working on the film. Myself and Ben Brewer were the two artists, and Ben was the 3D generalist. I, I, I'm not a 3D generalist. Uh, ben was not sure about taking it all on in 3D, and I pitched that it could be done in 2D. Um, I had seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit by Robert Zemeckis as a terrific example of how before computers you could just animate. And if you put the right lighting, the right tone, highlight, midtone, shadow, and drop shadow, something 2D could very much look like it's in the 3D world. I mean, the big secret is getting the color and the lighting right. So Zach thought about it and wanted to try one more artist to get a second opinion and pulled in Jeff Desim, who of course became a big important part of finishing the movie, and asked Jeff, you know, if he would try the shot in 3D. And Jeff had the same sort of feeling, like, this could just be 2D shapes where we paint in the highlight and the shadow and have them move properly and keyframe animate them, um, have squash and stretch and motion blur, uh, which they didn't have for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but we could have, that hides everything. And you could get away with these simple shapes and make it look like they were being juggled. And one other thing that I would point out is juggling, you know, uh, take three balls and juggle them in the air, looks more visually complicated than it actually is because you have multiple objects moving around. And the brilliance of what Jeff did is a lot of these objects are following the same motion path, but delayed. So you have the complexity of dozens of objects moving around, but the efficiency of uh, uh, only needing to do a certain amount of animation. And that shot kind of like blew the lid off the movie. It was like, this is going to work so well that we probably don't need to worry about 3D. We are making a live action cartoon. And so we started to approach a larger percentage of our shots just using 2D digital paint and photo collage with, again, highlight, uh, mid-tone, shadow, matching perfectly and adding drop shadows. And it brought depth and dimensionality to all of the effect shots that looked like they were really happening in front of the camera. But they weren't. <laughs> They're just stills and patches of color. It's really incredible. What do you think you took away from this experience, both as the lead visual effects artist working on the film and certainly after the film with it being such a huge success? But what are your sort of insights as far as whether they be about VFX or how teams are run or the industry? What have you kind of learned from this whole experience? You know, personally, I got very zen very early on about how it's completely okay to do an effect simply. And you don't have to try and impress anybody. Because if the shot works, the shot works. Uh, coming off of this movie, 
where we did things in a way very, very simply, all, all successful and, and elegant and tasteful, but in a way that's, that's so simple. Um, you know, I'm worried about going on to other projects where a more competitive group of people feel things have to be harder and more involved. Um, I, I really stress that every year the industry wants to set the benchmark a little higher, do something that hasn't been done before. But this movie told its story so well and so uniquely by using, by, by using all the tricks that, you know, have been around for, for decades. Yeah, we have some very complex shots that took a lot of time, elbow grease and some computation. But there's a reality that you can still make a good movie, if, even if you're using yesterday's tricks or tricks that people think are old-fashioned or, or are so old that people aren't even aware of them. Uh, and you can make a good movie. Um, you know, um, sometimes I have battles with the computer where people say the only way it can look real enough is if the computer runs a simulation and gets the lighting and the physics right. But we did shots by eye on this movie in, in, and by hand on this movie um, that are uncommon today. Matte paintings, obviously the, the, the Teppanaki shot is just color and tone. And it, it, it sort of is a reminder that you don't have to make things so complicated uh, if you can, if you have the right eye and the right brain for, for, for photography and painting, um, you can still bring those tricks to the table and it works. What is next for Mr. Ethan Felbau and what are you looking for and how do people reach you? So the group of us have decided to make a collective. So while we're not a company just yet, um, we've made what we call pretend VFX pretend. Um, and uh, we're just starting to put our real and website together. Its purpose is, is so that instead of trying to contact all of us individually, you can just go to pretendvfx.com uh, and you'll contact all of us. Um, it will eventually showcase um, some, some work that we feel should be spotlit. Um, and, and give people a sense of what services we can offer. Um, but right now, it looks like we are trying to stay together as a group, hop on to uh, other, other jobs. We actually started this week on a super secret feature that I can't talk about. So um, we are all working together again on another movie. Amazing. Yeah, my Web3 mind is kicking in, and I think you need a Discord or something like it. I I, I don't love. Oh, you are using Discord. First, that's the first time I've ever used it. I know I'm like a, you know like a that's so a funny. Dad that's... trying to use Discord for the first time. So like, do you do you have community people who are just fans of your work coming in? Well, I suppose we're a closed system. Uh, the Discord um, channel community. If I'm using the right language, I'm server. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I've, I have issues with discord and I think there's probably a yet to be designed better community platform out there. Um, but you can have both private and public 
I think they're called channels. I don't know. But what's great is you could have your private channel of your internal meeting, but then have a public channel called like your favorite shots. And then it's fans can come in and start posting pictures, talking about their favorite shots. You could have a channel called, um, you know, hire us where people pitch projects Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you create this community around the company or around the collective. And so then, then you're generating all sorts of leads and activity and content just in that. And then you can use that to launch. And, and then the next time you do a movie or a small project or a big project or uh, an NFT or a Kickstarter, you have that base community there to say, hey, uh, help us, help us do this. Well, that'll be the next thing to figure out. I mean, so far it's working in our closed system on this current feature for everybody to communicate very quickly. Uh, as to building a community, we'll see what comes. Amazing. So how do people find you and are you looking for work other than that? Or is it, are you focused on this collective right now? Uh, well, I'm always looking for work. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm employed. Uh, and um, uh, people can find me at my own personal website, ethanfeldbau.com. Uh, and that's going to be a little more featured feature heavy with my art direction. Uh, and you can find all of us who worked on everything everywhere all at once with pretendvfx.com. Everything everywhere all at once is incredible. If you haven't seen it, go to theaters, go see it, check out Ethan's site, follow him, watch his career explode over the next couple of years. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt.